0: Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be talking about the effective use of publicity by one of the Capitol riot defendants, the use of questionable informants, such as the recently arrested leader of the white supremacist group, the Proud Boys, and celebrating the release of Rosa Jimenez, a victim of junk science and wrongful convictions. In segment two, we'll be wrapping up our three-part look at the death penalty with a discussion about who can receive the death penalty and how the death penalty is carried out in the United States today. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and look to the lawofficeofbrianjones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news this week, a Texas man facing federal charges linked to the January 6th insurrection riot at the United States Capitol has publicly apologized and taken responsibility for his part and making death threats during the insurrection.
1: You know, that is so interesting, Brian, because I think that we all as a nation kind of want to hear somebody apologize for that whole situation. I mean, the fury that people feel about the insurrection um, is tangible. And I just never thought I'd hear anyone apologize, especially since maybe it would get him in more trouble in court. I mean, I'm not sure what was the idea behind that? Is this an admission of guilt?
0: So it's definitely an admission of guilt. Garrett Miller released his statement through his attorney and clearly stated, I was in Washington DC on January 6, 2021, because I believed I was following the instructions of former president Trump. And he was my president, the commander in chief, and his statements had me believing the election was stolen from him. Now, Erica, this is a great apology because it acknowledges responsibility without putting blame on other individuals. Consider if he had said instead, I was following orders. That's a deflection. And his use of the phrase, I believe, signals context, not deflection and not a reduction of responsibility. Now, in regards to his Twitter threats against the police officers of the Capitol and uh, Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez, he stated, while I never intended harm, to Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, nor harm any members of the Capitol Police Force. I recognize that my social media posts were completely inappropriate. I want to apologize publicly to Congresswoman Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez and the Capitol Police officers. I have always supported law enforcement, and I am ashamed by my comments." This is also an excellent apology, because it both denies intent to cause harm, but acknowledges that harm was ultimately caused. Both of these statements are admissions and they could be used against him should Mr. Miller ultimately decide to go to trial. But when you're taking this sort of position, trial isn't what Mr. Miller and his attorneys are looking for. His apology was released by his attorney. So it's obviously an absolutely a strategic effort um, to publicly say he's sorry and take responsibility for what he did.
1: So how will this apology help the accused?
0: Well, first and foremost, acceptance of responsibility is a key factor in sentencing in both federal and state courts. Where evidence of guilt is overwhelming, getting out ahead of the charges and ahead of a guilty plea by snapping out of your prior unhealthy mindset will carry a lot of weight with the court and the prosecutor's office. Second, a public apology, as you said earlier, Erica, it's something that America needs right now. And it provides a balm to everybody that was affected by uh, by this behavior. While it's a risk and it could lead to threats of harm for Mr. Miller, it can also lead to redemption in the eyes of the community, employers, and his friends and family. Last, but certainly not least, he is, in effect, putting himself on the legal market as a potential cooperator who can be used in both state and federal prosecutions against other individuals who were involved in the insurrection. Notice how careful he was to say, I believe Trump wanted this.
1: You know, I feel like a lot of them could say that and have it really be true. Um, And as I said earlier, I I am surprised that he apologized. I would think that most criminal defense attorneys would say, don't apologize. What would have changed within the strategy if he just didn't want to apologize?
0: Well, if if he were challenging his innocence um, and, and pursuing an actual innocence claim or some sort of justification defense, like many of the capital insurrectionists are, the public apology would be an, an unwise decision to say the least. Instead, he and his attorney have made a conscious decision and a strategic decision to issue the statement to the effect of the accused um, is, is regretting his actions and he wants to remedy this. Now, if he were challenging the charges, if he were claiming his innocence, if he were arguing justification, he may release a statement saying, "Um, I'm horrified that I've been charged with this, uh, and I eagerly await my opportunity to get into court and stand in front of a jury and clear my name at trial. In almost all circumstances, the wisest strategy for the accused person in particular is to remain silent until trial. But in cases where publicity has started already, the smart media strategy is essential to overcoming the bias that can consume jurors between indictment and the day of the jury trial. It's an essential component to the overall defense strategy and the most savvy defense attorneys know how to use the media to get their defense out so that their clients aren't prejudiced by the weeks and months of negative press coverage that lead up to a trial.
1: makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's really important, I, I think, to have an attorney to help figure out which strategy is going to work best for you. Did you think that this was the best strategy in this case?
0: Well, not knowing the particularities of Mr. Miller's situation, but just speaking generally about a lot of the alleged insurrectionists and the significant amount of video and photographic evidence that I I think is going to be presented against them, it does seem like a good strategy in these cases to get out in front of it. Now, many of these individuals are going to have moral objections to pursuing this sort of strategy. They truly believe what they did was the right thing, and they believe that their actions were justified. Remember that in a justification type situation where you're arguing a justification defense, you are admitting that you have committed the crime, but saying my actions are justified because, and in their position, in their opinion, uh, the the nation needed their support. The nation needed them to come through. in those sorts of situations, making an apology would obviously be very inappropriate. Um, you know, I think those are defenses that are available to a lot of these accused people. Whether juries are going to buy it is something that remains to be seen as these cases move forward.
1: Well, I can't wait to hear about all of the cases that will be coming out in the news soon. It's going to be very interesting.
0: Absolutely. One of the cases that's going to continue moving forward is that of Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the white supremacist Proud Boys. Um, And more particularly what we have now learned is that his upcoming cases regarding the Capitol insurrection are not the only involvement he's had with federal prosecutors. He has been a long time and prolific informant for federal prosecutors. And while he's facing new charges um, related to the damaging, uh, the vandalism of a historically black church in Washington, DC, his prior cooperation has now come to light.
1: Is the use of informants among law enforcement common?
0: Well, it's more common in felony cases, and in even more particularly in federal prosecutions. Um, in these situations, uh, informants are used by law enforcement all across the country every day. Um, informants, are, informants are most often seen in conspiracy type cases, um, drug trafficking rings, fraud rings, and not so much in interpersonal crimes like domestic violence, rape, or murder. In those cases, what many people would think of it as an informant is, is really just a witness. Now, the distinction between an informant and a witness is often very case-specific. An informant may or may not be identified um, through the exchange of information known as discovery. And in many cases, never even takes part in the trial. You'll recall, Erica, that it was an unreliable informant tip that led to the death of Breonna Taylor by law enforcement officers during a drug trafficking investigation. Now a witness on the other hand is somebody that's disclosed and will be called by either the defense or the prosecution during a trial. Witnesses, unless they're co-defendants of course, are not usually afforded any sort of reward for their information, whereas informants typically are, whether that's in the form of cash payments, leniency at sentencing, or dismissal of charges. So the big distinction here is uh, that benefit that informants receive.
1: That gives me another question. It seems like there might be different levels of informant. Is there a difference between a federal informant and a state informant?
0: Sure. In the hierarchy of prosecution, federal offenses often take precedent to state offenses. I think this is largely because the consequences of a federal conviction are often significantly more severe than that for its state counterpart. even more particularly an accused person who's charged with, let's say a state drug trafficking crime, can often offer information to law enforcement. And remember that federal and state law enforcement officers work together on many of these investigations. And if the federal government is interested in an investigation, they're gonna pick it up and they're gonna take that case through the federal district court process. Um, And the state can do that as well, but again, the severity of the consequences in the federal system often make a state prosecution irrelevant. Um, The federal government also has significantly more resources that the state can't offer, um, such as witness relocation and, and witness protection. An accused person who's facing federal charges will generally not see the sort of benefit cooperation in a state case the way they would um, in a federal prosecution. Unless, of course, um, the state case is is very significant, either high profile or uh, major sorts of crimes like murder, maybe a body location or victim identification that has some sort of publicly driven prerogative.
1: So why would Terrio deny his service as an informant? Wouldn't that help him in the long run?
0: Well, Erica, snitches get stitches isn't a cliche, because it's not real. It is a real consequence in our society. And while the justice system values the admission of guilt and cooperation, the community perception of somebody who breaks the confidence and trust of a friend, a business partner, a colleague, and reveals themselves uh, as an informant is is de- is decidedly selfish and disloyal in the views of of those people that they've betrayed. Consider what happened to Takashi Six Nine after he turned an informant in his federal conspiracy case. Now he received a significantly lighter sentence and protection, but he has been the butt of every joke um, in the in his community, both. Uh, personally and professionally. And he's been vilified across the board by both musicians and fans. A reputation as a snitch can place an accused person in danger while they're in custody. Um, Likely then, any benefit in having uh, uh, Tario's prior cooperation uh, made public is grossly outweighed by the release of this knowledge to the public by the fact that if he is ultimately sent to jail or prison, his physical safety is going to be at risk. Third, revealing actual cooperation with authorities can lead to his loss of credibility as a thought leader in his movement against the government in favor of white supremacy. Um, This has typically been uh, a thought process, uh, a movement that is lined against the government. Recall the highly successful white supremacist Aryan nation prison gang. So the the idea that he is working with the enemy is certainly going to cause him some significant loss of representation um, in the circles that matter to him the most.
1: I mean, yeah, no, i, I you do see that snitches get stitches <laughs> in the movies. And I guess that's same thing in reality and so i mean i guess i see where he's coming from there
0: last but not least erica did you see rosa Jimenez, who was convicted on junk science is now set for release after more than 15 years for in prison for a murder she never committed
1: i mean i think that that is unbelievable and i know that the case is something where people are are very emotional um, because it has to do with a child being murdered but like maybe you could fill us in on the circumstances uh, and refresh everyone's memory it was a while ago.
0: In 2003 Miss Jimenez was just 20 years old when she was taking care of her one year old daughter and a 21 month old baby boy when she noticed that the boy was turning purple and having trouble breathing. She tried to clear his airways. She took him to a neighbor for help and ultimately paramedics were called. A wad of paper towels was ultimately pulled out of his airway. And because of his lack of oxygen, the child ultimately died three months later. Travis County, Texas prosecutors at that time argued it was impossible for a 21 month old child to accidentally swallow a wad of five paper towels and charged her with murder for stuffing the paper towels down the little boy's throat, relying on no other evidence than the absurdity of five paper towels being in a 21-month-old's throat. Ms. Jimenez's public defenders called an expert witness during her trial, a forensic pathologist who testified that the death was accidental, but his credibility suffered because he was a terrible witness on the stand. Ultimately, she was convicted of that murder and has spent the last 15 years in prison.
1: I mean, that is just a tragedy and it was her own child. What evidence was presented to secure her release?
0: Three expert witnesses testified that the death of the infant was accidental. All three were nationally recognized experts in pediatric airway functioning. After the election of Ms. Jimenez's former public defender as the county district attorney, the DA's office supported her claim for release. This is not a conflict of interest, but rather a demonstration of why these elections and the election of reform prosecution candidates are so important. What she didn't have to deal with is a district attorney who wanted to maintain the conviction solely for the sake of keeping his record clean. She had somebody working for justice, which is what a prosecutor is supposed to do. The DA's office also filed an affidavit from one of the original experts who testified for the old DA's office and testified to a scientifically unsupported theory. The expert changed her mind after reviewing the evidence from the new airway experts.
1: So thank goodness they were able to reverse this finally. I mean, it's, Absolutely horrendous that this young mother would have to be in jail for so long for something she didn't do. So, what lessons do you take from this experience?
0: I think the first lesson we need to learn is that just because somebody's a professional doesn't mean they're going to make a good expert witness in that profession or that field. Defense attorneys have to make sure that their expert is a bona fide expert. Um, as in the highest possible credentialed person with the best experience in the appropriate field to support your case. You don't bring an RN to refute the medical examiner. Witness preparation is critical. Too many attorneys take a witness and throw them up on the witness stand without having ever talked to them beforehand. And knowing how that witness is going to to act under terms of cross-examination, Um, how they're gonna present themselves to the jury is really important. Last but not least, making the record like the original public defenders did is crucial to preserving actual innocence claims, even when the deck seems stacked against the accused. I
1: mean, I think you're right. not everybody is meant for the stand and not everybody can really represent your case the right way. I mean, I feel like it's the same thing with attorneys. So you have to find a good one like yourself who can really get up there and present the facts in a way that will get you the best results. And I feel like it's the same thing with the experts.
0: Well, that's true. And that's the reason I think it's so important to treat every case like a major case. Um, because even, even when we're talking about low level misdemeanors, those can ultimately be used in a prosecutor's decision to indict a case, to proceed with charges once an indictment is issued, and what a penalty should be after a conviction. So that's the reason we make sure that we treat every case as if it is the most severe case possible, because we want to make sure that every case gets the best result possible for our clients. And while Ms. Jimenez didn't face the death penalty, her case should have been litigated as if it was. And over the last two weeks, Erica, we've looked at why the death penalty isn't prohibited by the Eighth Amendment, uh, protections against cruel and unusual punishment. And we've looked at the relationship between the death penalty and due process rights. For our final look at the death penalty, we're going to answer the question of who can receive the death penalty and how the death penalty can be carried out.
1: And I think this is gonna be so interesting because in some of our past conversations, we have talked about how even in cases of murder, the people committing the murder do not always qualify to get the death penalty. So would you remind us again, who is eligible for the death penalty?
0: a great question as who can be charged with a capital crime is an area of law that is constantly developing. So in 2003, the Supreme Court of the United States decided Atkins versus Virginia. And in that case, they determined that individuals who were then called mentally retarded, but now referred to as intellectually disabled, could not receive the death penalty because their mental handicap lessens the severity of the crime and therefore renders the extraordinary penalty of death as disproportionately severe. In 2009, the Supreme Court of the United States decided Bobby versus Bynes and determined that states can conduct a hearing into the mental capacity of death row inmates who were labeled as intellectually disabled before Atkins. So they made Atkins apply retroactively. In 2014, the Supreme Court decided Hall versus Florida. And in that case, they held that a strict IQ threshold cannot be used to decide whether somebody's intellectually disabled for the purpose of being eligible for the death penalty. If we look back to Roper versus Simmons in 2005, the Supreme Court invalidated the death penalty for all juvenile offenders. So that was a broad-based elimination bright line rule. And that relies on a juvenile, a person who's underage, their lack of maturity and responsibility, their greater vulnerability to negative influences, and the incomplete character development of young persons. Juvenile offenders also have diminished culpability for their crimes for all of these reasons. Likewise, anybody who's found to be incompetent to stand trial is also ineligible to receive the death penalty. Think about people that have Alzheimer's disease, Huntington's disease, or CTE memory loss, because their lack of understanding renders the death penalty cruel and unusual. The underlying theme to all of these cases and the most recent line of rolling back of the people who are eligible for the death penalty has been to look at the diminished culpability or capacity to understand the crime itself or the reason that death is being imposed. Note, though, that all of these people, except those found incompetent to stand trial, can still be punished with life without the possibility of parole in a prison.
1: Well, I mean, that's all very interesting. And I was wondering, I mean, it's, it's tough because not everybody believes in the death penalty, even in a case where someone you love is killed or murdered. And I'm just wondering like what happens if the victim's family asks that they don't kill the killer.
0: So while the state prosecutors and United States attorneys can consider the wishes of the survivors of, of the victim's families. The prosecution's duty is to seek justice, and it's their prerogative to determine which cases are are death eligible. Consider how former Columbus prosecutor Ron O'Brien charged capital cases. The two that happened recently were both rejected by the jury, though those defendants were found guilty at trial, Anthony Pardon and Brian Goldsby. The family or the victim is also entitled to testify during the penalty phase of a death penalty case to advocate their wishes to the jury.
1: What conditions exist in carrying out the death penalty?
0: So the legislature of each individual jurisdiction tells us how execution will occur but the the manner that execution occurs, the manner that the government causes death is not allowed to inflict unnecessary or wanton pain. So the issue that triggered this moratorium on executions in Ohio uh, was triggered when uh, we experienced the three botched executions in four years that led to the unnecessary suffering of the condemned over and over and over again what we saw is the person being executed writhing in pain um, clenched hands uh, for the people that weren't paralyzed by the paralytic Um, what we know from individuals that have survived these sorts of situations is that the 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 pain is like an intense burning sensation Uh, it's described as fire flowing through your veins Uh, so the the drug that causes death without the effect of the paralytic um, can be wildly painful for those being executed. And even with our new drug protocol, there hasn't been an execution in Ohio, in part due to the unavailability of the drugs. What we're finding is that drug makers are refusing to sell the drugs to uh, government entities that are going to execute people. Now, Ohio was the first state to adopt the one drug execution protocol and the first state to replace sodium thiopental with pentobarbital. The first one sodium thiopental was very prone uh, to a lack of success whereas pentobarbital has been more successful. The the legality of lethal injection has been recently affirmed by the Supreme Court of the United States in 2015. Now in 2008, Bayes versus Rees, the Supreme Court developed the objectively intolerable test to determine if a method of execution violates the Eighth Amendment. And the lower courts have used this ruling uh, to eliminate the possibility of uh, electrocution or um, death by firing squad.
1: And like, even for me, this is a little uncomfortable to talk about. I, I hate thinking about people getting executed, even though some of the crimes are terrible. Can you tell us, does the inability to legally carry out the death penalty sentence mean that the person won't be killed by the government?
0: Not necessarily. As we just tragically witnessed in the federal system um, and former President Trump's execution spree at the conclusion of his presidency, the executive choice to carry out the death penalty is purely in the hands of the chief executive. Now, this is why despite 141 people sitting on Ohio's death row, no one has been executed in 2019 or 2020. However, someone is not released from death row simply because there's no way for the sentence to be carried out legally. In order to be released from death row, there would need to be a pardon or a sentence commutation or a specific change in federal or state law. And even if someone on death row had their sentence commuted, that person is not necessarily released, but more likely their sentence is going to be converted to life without the possibility of parole.
1: This is very interesting. And I do remember that. I remember that there were a lot of executions and there were a lot of pardons. So it was just a very strange last few weeks.
0: It was, uh, it was a strange last few weeks. That is absolutely true, Erica. And Erica, I, I wanna thank you for going through these last few weeks with me and participating in our discussion today. And I wanna thank everybody else for listening to our show subscribing, following, commenting. And remember, if there's a question that you want answered on the Sui Generis show, make sure you put it in the comments below so that we can bring it up in a future episode. And so that you can learn everything that you need to know about the hottest issues in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, holding law enforcement and the government accountable for their misdeeds, um, and everything else about uh, your constitutional rights, make sure to go to the law office of Jones.com or follow our social media channels, facebook.com slash Defense and at T-L-O-B-J on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as a discussion of pre-indictment sexual assault accusation defense. Erica, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And today, when I part ways with my friends, I add to that. If you do, and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.